Hello everyone, you are listening to Night's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. It's been three weeks since uh, a new episode of Night's History Cast, and um, as all students, professors, faculty, and anyone involved in academia knows, um, we are heading into the final weeks of the semester, and because of that, things start to pick up real fast, real quick. So that partly explains why there hasn't been an episode since November 9th with Dr. Frank Euketer. But I am happy to announce that this is a new episode, clearly. And it features Jim Stoddard, who served in the U.S. Marine Corps from 2003 to 2013. And since 2014, he decided to continue his education and has been doing so ever since. And his unique experiences and perspectives and being in the military and then coming back and continuing his, his education in history really intrigued me to ha- have a conversation with him and, and give him this platform to share his story because I think it's an it's an important one to listen to. So I don't want to get into any of the details. I don't want to spoil it in this intro. So enough of me talking. Cue that music. Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast, and I have the pleasure of talking to Jim Stoddard, who served in the U.S. Marine Corps from 2003 to 2013. He came to UCF in 2014 to continue his education. In the spring of 2016, he earned his bachelor's degree in history, and he began working on his history MA in the spring of 2017. Jim wrote his thesis on the homemade firearms of the Mau Mau Uprising, graduating in the spring of 2020. While working on his master's, Jim was a member of the Veterans Legacy Program research team. In the fall of 2020, Jim started working on his PhD in UCF's Text and Technology program. His doctoral research focuses on memory and identity in the U.S. Marine Corps. Jim also teaches American history courses for the UCF History Department. First and foremost, thank you for your service, and I'm happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, too. Awesome. All right. So... Um, just to give a little bit of context to our listeners, two nights ago, you were the moderator of UCF's, was it the first time they hosted this event? or uh, To my knowledge, yeah, it's the first time we've done something uh, like an alumni, a veteran alumni roundtable. Right. So, yeah, so it was the first annual uh, veterans uh, alumni roundtable event at UCF. It was uh, virtually, but you were the moderator. And um, this podcast is going to be uh, structured on that event, and um, but a little bit tailored to your own personal experiences. So um, my first question is, uh, what was the transition outside of the military like, and why did you decide to go back to education? Well, um, I got out of the Marine Corps in, in 2013 um, after 10 years, and um, I was actually medically discharged. So... Um, I wavered back and forth, you know, I, I, nostalgia looks back and says, oh, I would have stayed in for the full 20. But at the time, you know, it's uh, when you're in, a, in the moment, you know, you have a desire to get out, but also a desire to stay. But at the end of the day, um, uh, I, w- I was medically separated. I got out in um, the summer of 2013. Um, and I knew that it was the, the next thing needed to be education. Uh, because when I, when I graduated high school in 2003, um, I knew since September 11th, 2001, that I was going to join the military. And it was in those few years between 01 and, and 03 that I determined it would be the Marine Corps. 
And at the time, if you asked me, um, graduating high school, would you rather go to college or whatever else? And I, I, while school was fun and I did well in the subject I liked, I didn't have any desire to go to school, any, any desire to go to college. Um, and the, the calling of the military outweighed that uh, exponentially. Um, but while I was in, I, I did manage to take some college courses, uh, get some credit hours, uh, and I knew education. It was always in the back of my head that, okay, whenever this Marine Corps ride ends, you know, college should be the next thing, assuming I couldn't complete it while I was in service. And um, so when I got out, it was a natural step uh, as far as a plan would go. Um, and, um, you know, I got married while in my last year in the Marines and, um, my wife and I both, uh, grew up in the central Florida area. So it made sense to come back there. Um, she was, uh, well, still, uh, works at Disney. So we had, um, financially something to land on coming back to town. Um, I knew I could, uh, um, pick up some, some work also, but, um, you know, I, I got out, I started at Valencia in the, the fall of 13 to finish up my AA. A lot of my credits transferred over and I, I had a pretty good, uh, I think it was like two thirds to uh, completing my AA degree. So I finished that up at Valencia and then in the fall of 14 uh, came to UCF and um, I figured, well, if I'm going to take the time uh, to make my new job going to school, uh, it should be something I enjoy and something I want to go forward with. And history had always been that thing uh, throughout my education, throughout my hobbies, uh, that was a uniting kind of thread of being interested and in wanting to learn about and talk about the past. Um, so history was a natural fit. And uh, I started that. And like you said in the introduction, um, I, I finished that in May of, of 16. And um, uh knew I wanted to continue with my education, but um, I also, in the same year, um, my wife and I were expecting our first child. So I took the, the semester of, uh, fall semester of 16 off to so we could welcome our firstborn in the September of that year. So figure out how to be a dad a little bit right. before I, <laughs> I try to figure out how to become a graduate student. For sure, for sure. And um, yeah, I, I was curious to know if, um, if your experience in the military kind of influenced you um, to say, okay, you know, once I'm done with this, go, let's go back to education. But it seems like you always had that in the plans. Yeah. That, that like I said, that was always in the back of my mind. Right. Um, the, while I was in, I was an intelligence analyst. And um, so I spent a lot of time researching other places, countries, enemies, threats, their history. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing. Yeah. You know, I spent a lot of time in, with the, uh, in the air wing with pilots and they want to know about uh, enemy aircraft and, and how, what their threats are, what their capabilities are. Well, for me coming in, I, I didn't go to flight school. I didn't, I don't know how to fly or I'm not familiar with aircraft. So I had to research that. I had to go back and, you know, t before you get to the MiG-29, what's, what's the predecessor aircraft to that? You know, so I found myself doing a lot of historical research when it came to my intelligence work. Um, and I'd always try to fit that into my briefings uh, to uh, to officers, to, to commanders, and stuff like that. Um, and it, for me, that was always the fun part. And sometimes it would they, they'd want to move past a little bit faster than I would, <laughs> which was always kind of funny to me. Um, but maybe they knew the stories already. But uh, you know, I'd always try to fit fit the background in when I, where I was talking. And um, 
so I was always, I was always interested in learning even, you know, like I said earlier, coming out of high school with no interest in going to college, it didn't mean I didn't have an interest in, in learning and education. Right. It just meant I wasn't ready for that type of um, structured environment going in there at 18, almost 19 years old into college and, and things like that. I, I definitely wanted to go a different path. Um, and like I said, 9-11 had a major influence on that decision-making process. It made it, made it pretty simple, actually, um, of what I was going to do next. So, but... Uh, but yeah, now now coming into starting college again in 2013 and not having really stopped except for a semester or two here or right. there. Right. And, um, you know, within your answers, you're already kind of checking off certain things that I wanted to ask. Like, what you know, why why did he um, pick history once you came back? You know, um, you know, so this was this passion for history there, you know, since you were, you know, I guess you know, a kid or a young man, like how did that interest develop into what you did in the military and what you're doing now? Well, um, somewhat comically, I guess I could say, <laughs> you know, as a kid growing up, um, watching Indiana Jones movies and watching James Bond movies, you know, um, he, Dr. Jones was going around, uh, <laughs> you know, going through history, busting things up. And, and um, you know, I always was interested in that or uh, World War II and pre-war time, and he was working through all that. And then, you know, uh, James Bond during the Cold War being a spy and things like that. As a as a young boy, I, I was really wrapped up in that kind of stuff. I always thought it was interesting. So uh, the history side was what came early with that, and the um, intelligence stuff came early with, with that. So, you know, when uh, when the recruiter says, oh, you can be an intel analyst in the Marine Corps, <laughs> it's like, oh, great, I'm going to be go be James Bond. <laughs> and that's fur the furthest thing from, from the truth, obviously, you know, and, and it, you know it intellectually, but, you know, romantically, it right. sounds interesting. Right, right. Um, you know, most of it's working in rooms with no windows or doors behind a, a passcode uh, door lock and reading reports and writing reports, which um, I don't remember ever seeing Sean Connery do that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, or, or for that matter, uh, Indiana Jones. But uh, <laughs> so yeah, those, those you know pop culture influences people, and it definitely influenced me for. And I, I th think I've taken it more in a serious direction, obviously. Right. Um, but uh, as a kid, that's that's what the hook was for me. For sure. No, yeah, I get that. Pop culture does have a big resonance to to everyday people, and um, so this was a, a major um, theme throughout the the roundtable event. Um, about this experience of being a veteran on campus, you mm -hmm. know, not just entitled, but of all, um, you know, the experiences you guys have mm -hmm. and, and the skills you've picked up in your experience in the military. So can you explain to um, our audience what that feels like? Yeah, I, I mean, I can e explain my experience right. with it. Um, and I, I would assume there's veterans out there that would listen to this and go, oh, yeah, that's how I felt, too. Or, no, I'm totally different. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But speaking from my own experience, um, you know, I I did 10 years. So that meant I was exactly 10 years behind every other freshman or sophomore or whatever sitting in that classroom. And, you know, especially in my first few semesters, even before coming to UCF, I felt more uh, of a connection to the professors. Um, I was definitely closer in age to them than I was many of the students. And funnily enough, the at the undergrad level, the ones I, I felt, the, uh, my student, my classmates, that I felt most of a connection with, assuming they weren't a veteran, 
were the dual enrollment students, the ones that were still in high school but working on their wow. their college degree already. And I think that was maybe that was the maturity coming across. Right. Um, those they were dedicated students there to there to work there to get their good grades and and keep going and. That's kind of a similar thing I felt coming out of the military. I, I was used to a job where there was deadlines, tasks. Sometimes life was on the line. Things really mattered. And when you have that type of experience coming out of the military and into the civilian world, a lot of that falls away. You know, if you're, you know, I, I, I took a briefly took a job at a grocery store when I got out because that's what I did before I got in. I worked at a grocery store. So I don't know how to do that. So I'll come and do that again and do that while I'm in, in college for a little bit. And quickly I realized, oh, I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. Right. I, when I left that job at 18, coming back at 28, I can't do that anymore. I, 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 I'm too, I was too used to, um, having responsibility, having um, specific you know, tasks and missions that not only I'm trying to accomplish myself, but I, coming out of the Marine Corps as a leader, delegating those tasks and working with teams to accomplish that. I, I wasn't getting that again, um, kind of just settling back into what I thought I knew. And um, the great thing about uh, being in, in, in school, I guess, again, and, and trying to bring that in is you did get those those deliverables, those conversations, um, and, uh, building those relationships. And, and for me, it's, like I said, it started out mostly with the professors, but I, I thought it was cool to see some of those young students. It kind of reminded me of those young private young PFCs, um, that I would, uh, work with and, and hopefully mentor. And, and, um, so I, I, I guess what I tried to do was getting back to the transition question was I looked for what was familiar from my past experiences and bring those forward and at the same time really try to recognize what was different and do my best not to get frustrated or, well, this is wrong because this is the way I used to do it kind of mentality. I tried to leave that aside because I wasn't in the same world anymore. I wasn't in the military anymore. And... um that you know wasn't always the easiest thing to let go of. I mean, it was a ten years of my actual my identity was a Marine Marine Corps enlisted uh, enlisted man. You know, getting out as a staff sergeant. You know, um, as a, as a staff NCO, you're you're in the Marine Corps. There's a lot of um, responsibility put on your back, and all of a sudden, not having that. Um, you know, one day in uniform, one day out of. It took some time for that transition, I guess, is, is the short answer to uh, to what's becoming a long answer. But uh, it's fine. I like long answers. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so it, it, it took a couple, it took probably a couple years to really get get out of that headspace that was so indoctrinated into me. Um, one thing, you know, I, I'm not the only veteran I've ever heard say this, but one thing the military does well is indoctrinate you in and train you, training you what it is to be a Marine or a soldier or a sailor. Um, what it is to go to combat, what it is to do your job, but they they lack on the the outgo, uh, transitioning you back to civilian life or de-indoctrination, if that's a term. Um, you know, you you get three months of boot camp in the Marine Corps, and then you get maybe four days of a transfer course when you're at the end of your time, and uh, it doesn't doesn't always jive well. Um, we'll we'll put it that way. 
you shared in during the roundtable event that you had a similar cohort in the sense of you found other uh, veterans while you were going through um, your education here at UCF, uh, and you you titled it, it was like having your own like fire squad type of type of guys. Yeah. So uh, h- how did those relationships better support you in this endeavor? Yeah. So the the funny thing, I I see a distinction between my time as a uh, undergrad and my time as a graduate student. While I was an undergrad. I, there were other vets in my classroom. We talk and stuff like that. In fact, one of them I ended up knowing way better now as a graduate and, and, and moving beyond um, our MA program where we became friends. But he and I actually sat in the same undergrad classroom and sat pretty close to each other. And um, I think we both were still in that transition phase where you're you're kind of a little distrustful. You're wondering who, wondering you know who can I who can I relate to, who can I trust, kind of thing. And so um, for me, I, I can't say I really made friends as an undergraduate with my fellow classmates. They, they were classmates. We worked together on different things. And um, it, was, it was more the professors developing a relationship with them and figuring out what I want to do with my master's. But once I got into my master's program, that's when that you mentioned the fire team. That's when that really kind of came into clear focus. It so ha- it was so happened that um, me and there were three other veterans starting at the same time, same cohort. One of them happened to be the uh, the one I met as an undergrad, and it was in the roundtable last night, uh, Walt. And him and I, um, I think both of us were in better places as a, in our, when we got to the master's program, we were uh, among older students, um, and it became more of a professional environment. And we both had um uh had our own had our own transitions that that we went through we worked through and then you know it also Jason who was in the round table last night and and John also and the four of us kind of sitting in this historiography class together in in the first official uh, semester of our cohort and um it was funny i you know i think that probably at first night we all sat wherever around that table and there was you know six or eight other students interdispersed and we pretty quickly through what the other, you know, I, you know, physical identifiers, um, mannerisms and stuff. It's like, oh, I bet that guy, that guy seems like he was in the military. That guy's a veteran or, or whatever. And as the semester went on, we started to sit more closer together on the table. And, <laughs> and you know, we'd, we'd talk before class. And it was funny, some of the conversations we'd have before class about our time in service. And then every now and then you catch a glimpse of the, of the non-veteran students in the class. And they're kind of looking at us kind of funny because we're talking about some sometimes some crazy stuff. And uh, we would chuckle about that a little bit. Um, <laughs> kind of like this this little inside joke that we had that uh, right. felt kind of fun. But again, it was getting back to that familiar stuff, that connection to the to our past that we could bring forward. And um, since then, I mean, I still text and text chat with those guys on a daily basis. Um, that that fire team still exists just in a virtual form, and all of them, as as the, we t- discussed in the roundtable, all of them have gone on to do great things um, with with their education and with their um, personal and professional careers. Um, and I'm very proud of all of them, and they're they're great friends. I love them. They're they're awesome, and they helped me get through my uh, my MA program uh, at, with being having peers and and a support level at that at that classmate level that's awesome yeah no, that that's what that's what it's all about honestly i was curious when i was reading your bio when you sent it to me and then when i was reading it um 
you know the thesis that you picked the mm-hmm. the homemade firearms uh, yeah. can you expand on that like in terms of how did you come up with that thesis why that subject and how um you executed it yeah um accidentally would be the first way to describe it so um i mentioned in the round table one of well one of the i think uh, daniela mentioned him first but dr ezekiel, ezekiel walker um the uh, african history professor in the, in the history department and um I, uh, I was in another class and he came and guest lectured. And I thought, man, that guy, that was a really amazing lecture. He was talking about, about the, um, the history of the slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade. And I came into the program at, as an undergrad and even going into my, my MA program, I was, I'm gonna, I'll do American history. And uh, that's what I've always been most comfortable with is what I teach now. But um, as I took more uh, classes with Dr. Walker at the grad level, I realized that there was a lot of interesting stuff to discover within African history, on, on the continent, African history. And um, I liked it because it was taking me out of my comfort zone. Right. Um, and I you know, took a lot of courses with him. And I also was taking uh, a history of technology course with Dr. Foster. And um, I, I, as I was coming to determining what my thesis would be on, I was suddenly aware that I was interested in things that I was, wasn't initially interested in as I came into the program and my, my focuses were starting to shift. I, I came in thinking, oh, I'll do um, some American political or American military history. That's my comfort zone my, my, for interest-wise. Right. And, and all of a sudden, I was like, no, I want to do something with history of technology. I want to do something with African history. And um, I, I started talking with Dr. Walker about it. And there's a whole historiography of guns in Africa and what they meant for uh, colonial trade and uh, cultural brokerage and uh, things like that, uh, of course, with the slave trade. But I, I was looking into more modern history too, more recent events, and uh, looking at the colonial uprisings and colonial rebellions that took place in Africa in the mid-20th century and, and, and later, a little later too. And um, I was going through digital, you know, some digital archives, you know, places online that I could find something to talk about. And I came across the Imperial War Museum's uh, digital collections, and I saw this very rustic, interesting-looking weapon. And it, it wasn't something made in a traditional factory. It wasn't, it wasn't made in Europe. It wasn't made in America and shipped to Africa. It was made in Africa. And it, it just simply read um, homemade firearm, Mau Mau uprising or Mau Mau rebellion. I forget how they phrased it. There's loaded terms in both of those phrases. And um, I said, what's this? And I started reading about it. And, and you know, it's, it's from this um, uh, rebellion that took place in Kenya in the 1950s. Um, the Kikuyu people were, were trying to uh, get out from under the yoke of uh, British imperial oppression, colonialism. And, um, okay, well, this is interesting that you have a, a firearm made by, by local Kikuyu Africans, but it's in the British Museum, and they're the ones talking about it now. The British are the ones framing it, and the label for it said, um, for ceremonial use. And I thought, that doesn't look right to me. <laughs> right. Because this, this gun looks well used. Right. Also, if you're having a rebellion, struggling for your life, struggling for the freedom of your country, how many ceremonies right. and parades are you really having? That that struck me as odd. Yeah. 
So I started doing digging on it and I talked to Dr. Walker about it and he thought that was a great thing to really get in on. And I wrote my thesis on them and basically arguing that these weren't ceremonial props. Right. They, they use them as weapons. Not only do they use them as weapons, but they influenced their strategy and tactics. They influenced their logistics. They were making these, they had factories that where they were producing these from um, infrastructure around them. You know, um, they weren't they weren't the safest things in the world. There, there's right. plenty of examples where the barrels blew out the side because they were using um, water uh, pipes or or mm. gas tubes mm -hmm. as the barrels. Um, they were using tree stocks for the uh, or, or cuts of wood rather to make the stocks. They were using rubber bands and springs. Um, to fire for to to move the firing pin forward, I, you know, a, think of a ballistic slingshot in a lot of ways. But they were using them, mm -hmm. and and they were using them enough that the oral histories of British soldiers that fought in those campaigns talked about them. Mm -hmm. um, I extrapolated some of the math that that suggested that at least in certain areas of the conflict, they were widely used. They they were the main source of firearm, kind of bridging the gap between um, edged weapons which were what the majority of, of the, the fighters carried to um, uh, prof you know, uh, professionally or traditionally made firearms from the West that maybe the upper echelons of, their, of the groups would carry. But in the middle, mm -hmm. if you were gonna have a firearm, it, it seemed to me that it was gonna be one of, one of these, what they called homemade guns. And I um, thought they were really fascinating, really interesting. I got to see some of them in person when I went to the Imperial War Museum in 2018 hold them and look at them, take my own pictures of them. And, wow. you know, some of them still functioned a little bit. Um, some of them didn't, you know, they had decayed enough. Um, and they, they came home as war trophies. And the way the war museum got them is when um, uh, Great Britain um, buckled down on certain gun regulations. A lot of them got turned in um, from private private ownership to into the museum. Um, and uh, also there was a consolidation of... Uh, uh, regimental museums too during the, uh, a period of time where they turned in a lot of their holdings to the Imperial War Museum also. So, you know, sitting in probably one of the largest armories, non-military armories in Great Britain in the basement of the IWM uh, was an amazing experience. And to have among thousands of any weapon you could think of, nine of these homemade weapons from East Africa was just, was amazing to me. And um, but yeah, that, that's <laughs> long story, right? No, uh, that, I, I'm fascinated. Like I'm here, you know, for the listeners, I, you know, my face is, I'm in awe cause it's, uh, it really is, uh, I, I like I said in the bio, I was like, come, that, that sounds like an interesting, uh, thesis, you know, uh, topic. And now that you're going in depth into it, I mean, wow. First of all, I didn't know it. So I'm learning right now. And second of all, it does sound fascinating. So yeah, no. Please. Yeah. I like when you share a lot. Yeah. No, it's it's exciting for me to talk about because the I haven't really discussed it in great detail in a right. while because being it was my master's and that was in 2020 and now my dissertation is in a I still do military veteran kind of history which I did get into that a little bit with my thesis but I'm back to American military history and I've kind of uh, moved moved past that that chapter but I still I still. I, there's, I think there's still a lot more to do with it, and uh, maybe down the road I'll get back to it. But definitely something I was, I'm very interested in, and, and happy to talk about. All the theses are published in in Stars, right? They are. Right. So I, I for one, I'm gonna check it out now. And um, for anyone listening, you guys should as well, because it definitely sounds interesting. 
you mentioned you're now your doctoral researched. Um, so can you explain that shift um, as to, you know, why you transitioned from African history in the continent to now more American history and identity? Yeah. Um, well, they happen concurrently. Okay. So while I was working on my master's, uh, working with Dr. Walker and doing that research, I was also fortunate enough to be part of the Veterans Legacy Program research team, which you, you mentioned in the bio. Mm-hmm. And that started in, well, my work on it anyway, started in the spring of 2017. And I was fortunate enough to be on every f- subsequent iteration of it in 2018, 19, and early 2020. And then the pandemic kind of put everything on hold. And uh, now uh, it's, uh, it's come back. Uh, we're, we're a new, new iteration of it has begun. Um, but in but in the early days, um, you know, I I started working on that and just writing metadata for some of the objects that we were finding. The the goal of the program at, at that time um, was twofold. It was um, creating educational material for the K through 12 classroom, and also writing biographies of uh, veterans who have since passed and were interred at the uh, Florida National Cemetery in Bushnell. Uh, a couple hours from here, and uh, we the bios were written by uh, undergrads in the classroom and some of us on the research team, and then the master students, um, the more senior master students anyway, not myself in that iteration, began editing them and um, getting them ready to be published online on a, the VLP website. So because of some work I did as an undergrad um, for Dr. Byler and Dr. Lester, I was writing metadata for some riches items. And um, that small, uh, that, that little job got me the, the other bigger job, I guess, working <laughs> in the VLP. And, and that, that kind of grew, grew forward from writing the metadata to writing the metadata team and then starting to edit and write bios and getting to go on a research trip to, to France in the summer of 2018 because we, we expanded that year to include um, American Battle Monument Commission cemeteries, ABMC cemeteries in France um, for World War I soldiers um, at uh, the Meuse-Argonne and um, the uh, Enmarne cemeteries in eastern France. And uh, we went out there for 10 days and, and through those two cemeteries and a couple others and um, getting to see the grave sites of those veterans we had been writing and reading and researching about for the last few months, getting to stand there at their, their grave site. And um, we, while there, we took uh, photographs and coordinates and recorded videos and um, I think really took our research to the next level. And I, I, Upon returning from there, well, at the end of that, that 10 days, I also that's when I got to go to the, the War Museum. I, I went over to London from, from Paris um, mm-hmm. to do my own research, too. Right. But coming back from that, and I, I told uh, Dr. Lyons this when I returned. She, she was the, uh, the, head, the head PI on that um, for, the, for the VLP and, and kind of leading that research team. I told her, you know, uh, that's the first time I, I felt worthy enough to consider myself a historian. Now, I was out in the field doing research. I was in the archives um, looking for things, trying to, trying to answer my questions, answer other people's questions, and um, out of the classroom, in the field, doing the research, doing the work, 
getting, you know, maybe back to that little bit of that Indiana Jones feeling. <laughs> for sure. No boulders or, or booby traps, fortunately. <laughs> Although, you know, we did walk through Bella Wood and, and there's oh. unexploded ordinance there. So oh. there, there is that element okay. of danger. Well, there you go. We can, we can play that up a little bit. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I've, I've actually felt like I could call myself a historian at that time. And, um, and you know, reservedly so and maybe more liberally as I've gotten gotten on and, and now into my my PhD uh, work but um, so because of that program I, without a doubt um, I really got interested into veteran research and and it really felt some kind of coming home in a sense back to the military back to talking with veterans doing oral histories with veterans um, being, you know, getting back to that tribe a little bit. And also, you know, a lot of the people that worked on that project were veterans too. Um, uh, mentioned Walt earlier. You know, he, he helped work on it. Jason helped work on it for a while too. And um, I knew going forward, you know, I, want, I, I knew I wanted to pursue my PhD after my master's. And it, it felt like a, a natural fit to uh, I, I keep digging into the veteran history and, and being a Marine, um, you know, I, I wanted to dig deeper into Marine Corps history and um, moving into my, my doctoral research, you know, I have to get, get a focus and be very specific about what you want to do with your dissertation. And I, I wanted to look at, I wanted to juxtapose, or I am juxtaposing, I guess, because that's what I'm doing now, is... Um, I'm, I'm looking at the Marine Corps' institutional narrative of its own history, how the Marine Corps tells its past, and particularly how it tells its past to new recruits as they come into boot camp over the generations through the 20th century. And I'm looking at that, that narrative and comparing it to the academic history and the memory and oral history of individual Marines and kind of looking at what the Marine Corps says about itself, what the academic history says, and what Marines say, and kind of seeing if wh where those things overlap, where they differ, um, where um, the memory and the myth um, overcome the um, more academic uh, research of the history. And I'm way, the way I'm doing that is I'm looking at three specific battles um, as uh, as case studies. I'm looking at the Battle of uh, Bella Wood from World War One. I'm looking at Iwo Jima from World War II and the Chosen Reservoir Campaign from the Korean War. And all of those are uh, extremely important battles from it, within the Marine Corps identity and our memory. And they are foremost, you know, in that first half of the 20th century, we, we, when I was in boot camp anyway, and I think probably still now, we learn a great deal about those those battles and what they represent and, and the, the legends and the history that comes from them. But they're all kind of unique in a sense too, where, where, the, where Bella Wood, it was a tactically important battle in a larger strategic offensive. But it was a big deal because it was the first real major engagement that the Marine Corps was involved in, was leading and took the brunt of, of in that fight. And then uh, you have Iwo Jima, which arguably is the most iconic battle from the Pacific War of World War II, the flag-raising photo by, by Rosenthal. Everybody's seen it. Everybody knows about it. But there's an argument to be made that it was a battle that may not needed to take place and never really paid off in the long run of the lives lost of Marines to take the island versus the lives saved by um, uh, 
aircrew in danger that had to land there on their way back from bombing mainland Japan. Um, and there's the, there's the question of, you know, did its um, emotional importance outweigh its strategic importance? And then the Chosen Reservoir, that was uh, a withdrawal from the northern border of North Korea and, and you know, uh, North Korea and China. And when the, the Chinese, communist Chinese came over the Yalu River, all of a sudden overwhelming American and NATO forces, they had to pull out of that area. And the most uh, likely place where you're going to lose men is in that retreat and, God forbid, becoming a route. And it was the Marine Corps that, that um, organized and protected that withdrawal out of the area, uh, the 1st Marine Division in particular, and ensured that the maximum, maximum amount of, of uh, soldiers and Marines living came out of that, the wounded came out of that, and whenever possible, the dead too. Um, because, you know, unfortunately with the way the, the Korean War shook out, it's, it was hard enough to get the living POWs out of North Korea after the armistice, let alone fallen comrades. So, um, it's not, you know, it's hard to paint that as some glorious victory. It wasn't a, some set piece battle. It was a, a running gunfight from, to, from the board to the coast. And, um, so looking at those three unique, uh, instances and, 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 my goal is to hear from people who fought in those battles through oral histories, through diaries, and juxtapose them to what the Marine Corps says about them, what the, what the Academy says about them, and try and find the similarities and differences. That truly is um, probably one of the most unique dissertation works I've heard. You know, the, the, the fact that you're looking at it institutionally, how the Marine Corps te- teaches it and, um, you know, passes it on to their new recruits, that within itself in my opinion, is already imperative and interesting. But the fact that you're juxtaposing it to, you know, their own memories, the people that actually went through it. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow. I mean, I, you know, that, that's honestly impressive. And I give tremendous props to you. And I, and I do mean that. You well, know. I appreciate that quite a bit. And, and you know, it's still in my it's still in the, the front window. You right. know, I'm still that's what I'm right, trying currently. to do. And right. I hope that I can do it justice. And, and you know, my. I'm a Marine. I love the Marine Corps. And it's it's my my goal to I, – I, I'm not trying to refute anything or say this is wrong or they shouldn't tell it this way. Right. I'm just really interested in, in how the Marine Corps imbues this identity onto its recruits, onto its officers that come in to – so in, in – for enlisted in those 12 weeks creating that – you know, they come in as a recruit and they leave as a Marine and, and – feel like a Marine when they leave and they haven't been to the fleet yet. They haven't gotten to their first unit yet. They haven't even gotten their MOS, their job, what they'll be doing for their enlistment. But they come out of there with their Eagle Globe and Anchor. I'm a Marine and um, I'm not a recruit anymore. There's a difference. And um, I, I, I love that history. I love that, um, that mythology, that lore, Mm -hmm. the legend and I want to I want to explore that further. And I think I think it's an interesting way to interrogate it is to look at the the academic side and and the the personal experience side that you can get through talking and listening to uh, oral histories. No, for sure, I I, I agree. And um, and you know, so you just started. It. So when do you um? What's the timetable? The rough timetable. Um, you could <laughs> going to get me on record where my advisor's <laughs> listening. How long this is going to take? Um, <laughs> I you know. 
Uh, I think I think an optimistic window is maybe 18 months from okay. January, um, maybe longer. Hopefully not longer than two years, um, especially if, if my wife is going to listen to this, you know, uh, as quick as possible, yeah. <laughs> uh, but thorough and detailed as possible at the same time. For sure, for sure, <laughs> for sure. And in, in that answer, you uh, kind of gave us uh, a sneak peek of, you know, the next uh, Night's History cast episode after yours, which would be... Um, about the Florida France Soldiers Stories Project, which mm-hmm. you will be part of, so mm-hmm. uh, I'll be looking forward to talking to you again. Uh, so yeah, little little sneak peek spoiler. All right, so going back to some of the uh, talking points from from the roundtable two nights ago. Um, so you kind of mentioned that you and your wife were both uh, raised in Central Florida, grew, grew up in Central Florida. So were there any other decisions involved in why you chose UCF? Well, um, yeah, you know, like I said, uh, you know, Danielle and I call Central Florida home, even though, you know, neither one of us were born here. I was born in New York. She was born in Ohio. But uh, we both came here as as, uh, young kids and um, our families are here. Our our life developed around here. She was working is working at Disney, came back uh, to to have that Um, UCF. was was a natural fit geographically at first, you know, to, to be honest with you. If I was from, you know, if, if I moved to Ohio and we lived in, in uh, Columbus, Ohio State would have maybe been a more natural fit. Or, um, you know, if we lived in Gainesville, University of Florida would have been a geographical fit. But we were in Orlando. So UCF was where I looked um, after Valencia. And, um, you know, I've had a few opportunities since to, to go to other schools after I finished my bachelor's, after I finished my master's. And each time, no, I, I want to stay here. I like it here. Um, I, I love the people I've worked with, the relationships I've developed. Um, it's no longer the, the geographical answer. It stopped being that, I would say, a long time ago. But um, the, the affordances that this school has to offer were, for me, were, were fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, if I, if I were somewhere else, I think my research focuses would be different. Uh, maybe there'd be some similar themes, but I would probably, I can't, you know, without Dr. Walker coming into that class and me getting, uh, courses with him, I don't, my thesis wouldn't have been about homemade firearms from the Mau Mau. If it wasn't for the, the VLP at UCF when that first year, I think there was only a handful of schools that got that. VA contract from NCA um, in 2017. Um, so it's unlikely I would have been at one of those other few schools that had that program where I would be working on veterans history, um, getting to where I am now. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I've enjoyed my time here and, and I'll be here for a little bit longer. And I'm now getting to teach here too, uh, as part of my assist- assistantship for my, uh, my PhD and over the summer as an adjunct. Teaching in the history department has been been awesome. I, I you know I've I always uh, you know part of the reason for getting into the, the history profession is to teach. Um, I think I think it's as important as doing the research um, because if you're just researching and writing for the people that already have the degrees, you know they're already smart. They can do that on their own. Maybe right. It's it's the 100%. it's the yeah it's the students that are coming in that haven't had good history classes or didn't care about history. I, I, every semester I get a student, oh, you know, when I was in elementary or high school, I didn't care about history. I thought it was boring. But now at college level, it's got more interesting. And, and 
for every one or two students I hear say that, I hear adults say that all the time. You know, 40 and 50 year old people like, oh man, when I, I was history was born, but now I love it. I can't get enough of it. And I think it's so cool you're, you're working on it. And, um, you know, so being able to be back in the classroom, but on the other side of the, of the desk, as it were, um, has been so rewarding uh, to, to help students um, answer their questions and, and, and read and write about our past and, and, and the interpretations and the debates about it has has been really uh really really awesome and um it's something i hope to continue to do after my after i you know one one day earn my phd um you know to take that forward uh, and uh, continue to teach continue to research and you know do, do that kind of work yeah for sure and i i, I was going to ask about your experiences in teaching um those american history courses um and i agree with you know from the student perspective yeah, I'm a little biased because I've always I'm I was never that kid. I was actually the quite opposite. I was that one kid that liked history uh, throughout. So you know. there's more than just me. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was I was that one kid that actually that was my favorite subject when people asked me back in high school, middle school. So so I get it. But yeah, the the, the majority is the otherwise where they're like, oh, you know, they take it for granted. So you know? true. And you know, coming into college, I feel like that that mindset changes, and it's because of. You know, I think it's primarily because of the passion that just rubs off when you're teaching it. You know, I've, I've obviously never seen you teach, but just from this 45 minute conversation, I could tell that you have a genuine interest and passion in what you do. And that shows. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, at the start of the semester in a given course section, you know, I might have 50 students. And I do my best. And you know, I'll ask them, you know, to, for an introductory discussion. You know, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, and the extreme minority are history majors. Most of them are something else. And I go in planning my courses and, and what I, my content, knowing that. And my goal is to not, not turn them into history majors or get them you know, from one program to another, but at least get them to enjoy the class, want to learn, look forward to the content uh, and in involvement with their classmates and um, get them to care uh, enough uh, that uh, they they go forward. And go, oh yeah, that was, I enjoyed that. Or you know, recommend this class to a friend. That kind of thing. Right. You know. Um, uh, but uh, that that to me, you know, aside from the oh man, I, I didn't enjoy history. Now I, I like it. Thank you. Or that kind of stuff. But it's the ones that you can kind of pull from the other disciplines. That you know, I'm, st I'm still going to go on with my engineering degree, but I'm going to take more history classes, or I'm going to yeah. read more history yep. now, or yep. I found a new genre of book I want to I want to read about, and that to me is extremely rewarding. Um, the, the the humanities I think often take a back seat mm -hmm. to um, science and math and engineering, and um, for multiple reasons, but. Um, it's always nice when when you can get one for for the humanities, get one for the, for history, and um, you know, kind of send out a, an evangelist. Yeah, yeah. For the past, uh, you know, kind of comically, but um, yeah. And, you know, and, and to piggyback off of from your from your answer to add on to it, uh, um, my original major coming into college was biomedical sciences, um, and I still have that major, so I'm graduating with two majors, that one and history, but I'm a do history now as a as my career obviously outstanding and you know I, I definitely resonate with that feeling of you know you know those students that 
came into college not taking history for granted and you know underappreciating it and they're going to continue to do their their discipline but now they have um you know a new sense of what history really is like and the appreciation you know i've been TAing for one of those professors at the biomedical sciences discipline who i'm who i'm close to and in his class you know he he he's He's very talented. He he he's in all types of disciplines. I mean, he he's knowledgeable in, in all sorts of things. But he told he he's told me that in the past he's used to introduce the history of science topics. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do that anymore because he feels like people don't appreciate it. But ever since I came into the the play, um, and he knows that I'm a history major now, he starts to bring it back, and he even lets me sometimes when I'm you know giving instructions or whatnot, you know, tell that uh, to the best of my ability, obviously, and the students resonate, you know. So I definitely, I definitely, um, understand what you're, what you're saying in that, in that previous answer. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's why I feel like it's important. All right. But heading into our, our last two, um, questions slash talking points, uh, for this pod. So, um, this one I actually had planned prior and they, they stole it in the, in the veterans round table. <laughs> um, no, I'm just teasing, but yeah, uh, I usually like having some, some fun questions just, you know, cause I love uh, picking people's brains, especially people that are interesting, like yourself. Uh, so, what was your favorite class or or experience throughout your tenure at UCF? Which is a lot to go through, but if you could pick one, I know that's hard putting you on the spot, but oh man. <laughs> um, well, at the undergrad level, um, I took a lot. I think he got a shout out in um, in the roundtable last night, but I took a lot of classes with uh, Dr. Plavniks. Um, who's now at uh, Florida Southern, I believe. But uh, he taught a lot of World War II, uh, Third Reich, interwar uh, classes. And I, you know, my first semester here, I I registered pretty late because of the way that the GI Bill and all that type type of stuff shook out from when I got out to when I was enrolling um, and kind of getting everything transitioned over from Valencia to, to UCF. And um, I think I enrolled in my classes like a week before the semester began. And uh, there was only a few left. And I was like, okay, well, this, this is interesting. Interwar, uh, you know, 1919 to 1938 or 39, whatever the, the scope was. And I was like, that sounds interesting. And um, with, uh, with uh, a you know, funny name, Professor Plavniks, what is that? So I... Um, I enrolled in that, and it's like, oh wow, this is so cool. I, you know, the way he taught was engaging. Um, the subject matter was really interesting to me, you know, um, and uh, kind of it covered the development, the rise of fascism in Italy, and the rise of Nazism in, in Germany, and and how those uh, ideologies changed and shaped the the remaining half of the 20th century and particularly you know the, the early you know the 1930s and 40s and it's like wow that's so cool and so basically every semester going forward where he was teaching something that I hadn't already taken from him um, I enrolled in that class with him right so <laughs> I, I can't pick any one uh, okay but but definitely though at the undergrad level that that was really awesome you know I I enjoyed uh, uh, the the uh, because I already gotten past the survey level courses, so I was right. I was fortunate enough to be able to take start to take those specific courses in right. those few semesters I had here as an undergrad. But then at, at the the master's level, um, you know, 
we all had to take everyone has to take historiography and at the time it was it was taught by it's always taught by the grad director and at the time the grad director was Dr. Amelia Lyons uh, who I mentioned earlier so getting to learn the how history's been the history of history uh, right. and the research of it and the historians craft a little bit that was that was a I can't call it a fun class but it was a uh, very engaging and and I learned I'll learn a lot in that class um, you know how to how to read research and write a little bit and then um, but those classes I took with dr. Walker at the master's level um, the history of um, of African slavery the you know South African history those types of things were were really were really eye-opening and, and amazing classes and, and informed helped inform my thesis research um, so I I know you asked for one I can't I can't give you one it, it, it would, to say one wouldn't be fair to so many others, and and being being a self-identified history nerd, you know, I, I would I would take you know the history of underwater basket weaving, if <laughs> if it was offered, yeah. and the, the professor was an interesting person. No, for sure, I'm <laughs> I'm with you. So no, it's fair. Uh, I I just ask because you know it's I gotta ask it, but um I, I that's a fair point. It's hard to pick one, and I'm I'm with you. If that class opens up, I'll, I'll be the next student right next to you. Uh, yeah, I, I mean another one too that that comes to mind. It was with classes with Dr. Gannon. Um, I this you know at, at the uh, my PhD level beyond the the core courses that are required for T and T. Um, I, you also get to take electives, and naturally, all my electives were history classes. Of course, because uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Right. And um, you know, taking a, I did in one semester in the spring semester last uh, this year, I did a oral history class with Dr. Gannon, and I also did an independent study with her on military memory. Two extremely important subjects to my dissertation. Um, she's on my my committee, and um, so and and. Tangentially, the, the you know the 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 leader for for everything that the history department has done with Veterans Month. I think she was one of the initial people to get it going on UCF, and uh, over the last decade, and um, yep. you know running uh, the Veterans History Project that interviews um, uh, local Florida veterans, creates oral histories with them that then go on to the Library of Congress. You know, so, so much of the veterans work that happens at UCF um, and, and especially within, within the history department wouldn't, I don't think would necessarily happen without her. Um, she, you know, the, the, the commandant, if you yep. want to call her, no, uh, yeah. <laughs> of, of, uh, of veteran, uh, veteran history. So, you know, big shout out to her. Um, yes, yes, for sure. Indeed. So my last question for you in this podcast, which I hope everyone's been enjoying because it's, it's been a really, a really fun one, a really interesting one, a unique one. What advice would you give to anyone that's in the military now that's on their way out? What do you tell them to go with education or, or some other path? What, what advice would you give to that person? Well, everybody comes out of the military with their own unique experience. Right. You know, speaking in generalities, yes, continue your education. Um, but not everybody, you know, some people do the education thing while they're in, you know, if, if you're coming out as an officer, you came in with a, at least a bachelor's. So, um, traditional education may not be for you, but, um, never stop learning is, is the one key factor. Um, even if you, if you get out, I mean, like for me, I could have gotten out of the Marine Corps as an intelligence analyst with a security clearance and easily rolled in 
to uh, an intelligence, you know, contracting job, rolled into a government uh, position that dealt with intelligence or security, things like that, with with the with no degree, right. rolled into something like that. A lot of people do, and and that's necessary and great that they're they're doing it. I just I wanted to do something a little different. Um, but just because you do something like that doesn't mean you you shouldn't or can't continue um, with the traditional education, getting that degree. It leads, you know, if you are in a government p- position, getting your bachelor's or your master's and in, can increase your pay, increase your chances for promotion. So there there are pragmatic reasons for doing it. For sure. Um, even in in a professional environment. But if you're, you know, a lot, I, I, the bulk of veterans. The bulk of people who serve in the military, as as I've read and understood, are are individuals that enlist out of high school, do four years, uh, and get out um, because they're they're done with the military for whatever the reasons are, and they're back to square one. You know, they're four years past what they were when they graduated high school. They didn't maybe do any education while they're in. Um, their job may not translate at all to the civilian world. Um, and they need a new direction, a new mission. And one thing the military really ingrains in you is, is mission accomplishment. It's, it's primary above troop welfare in a lot of cases. And getting the job done is, is important. And when you get out of the military, all of a sudden, you don't have an officer telling you what today's mission is, what the objective is. You don't have a sergeant major on your back making sure you get it done. You don't have a sergeant who's got the sergeant major on his back who's now on your back too making sure you get it done. And um, you're, you're, you can easily, easily feel alone and twisting in the wind. And um, I, I would advise you know, a, a, a great next step uh, after that is, you know, use the military benefits you've earned through your GI Bill, through um, vocational rehabilitation is another program that helps pay for college and not just college, but professional trade schools too. If you want to go be a diesel mechanic, uh, they'll help you do that, that kind of thing. You know, it doesn't have to be um, traditional academics, but do that. If, you, if, if that's something you want, if you're looking for the next mission, education is a great place to look at. Um, it'll get you back into some structure that you're used to maybe wanting or lacking and, um, you can go real far with it. You can, you can, you know, like me, you know, Mm -hmm. I've been, been at the student game for a while and, and, and I'm kind of coming around that, that corner now where, um, I'm looking at the other side of, of the academic coin and, um, but, you know, come in, you get that four years. One of, um, one of the round table participants the other night, uh, Ken, Came out, you know, he was an infantry uh, soldier, got out, um, came to UCF, was getting, got his bachelor's degree, worked on one semester, his his final semester, I think he said in 2017, spring of 2017, worked on the VLP. And there, because it was a growing program within within the VA, within NCA, um, they had job openings. He took that education. He took that VLP experience, applied for a job. He now works for VLP in Washington, D.C. And I understand now the longest serving individual in that office. And I think a lot of that has to do with he's a veteran. He's worked on the project from the the, um, uh, student side. He cares. And um, and he he wants to see that program succeed. He's invested. Um, So 
it doesn't have to be a perpetual student such as myself that that you that you can pursue your education with get that four year degree get into the professional world with it find that new mission and um, when you're feeling the lowest you're feeling the the most desperate never forget that there's other people around you feeling the same way I'm Daniela in the roundtable said some stuff to that regard you know um, struggling with classes with personal issues that work life balance. I think it was Dr. Gannon who who kind of pulled her back into the life raft with some some good, kind, truthful words that that remind you that it's everybody's everybody's struggling in their own way. And you know that whole that duck metaphor where where the duck is common, competent on top of the water. Every veteran wants to look common, competent on top of the water, but a lot of us are paddling like hell underneath to stay afloat. And um, I think it's uh, it's so important that uh, you don't forget that and you're, you're not alone. There's other of us out here that are willing to help and talk and none of this is to say that I figured it out. Right. It's just that I, I'm, everything I'm saying now is stuff I've heard and resonated, you know, heard from other people and it's resonated with me. Um, so uh, many resources out there. The VA is very helpful in a lot of those ways and um, education is uh, getting back to the original nut of the question I think um, education is a, is a fantastic place to to move to next for that next mission post military that was potent advice um, and, and very sincere so thank you everybody for listening I hope you all enjoyed it um, I definitely did I hope you did Jim oh thoroughly I, I really I, you know as you can tell, I could talk for a while on this. Yeah, and I I appreciate your your kindness and willingness to let me run run uh, wide at, at times. But of course, thank you. I, course. I enjoyed it. Of course, Jim Stotter, everyone. Thank you. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it. I definitely enjoyed um, having Jim on the pod. His uh, unique experiences in the military and how he applied that. Um, into civilian life was really refreshing to hear because at least for me personally I don't really hear that a lot um, especially in person so for me it was it was an awesome time and, and I really appreciate Jim's candidness and thoughtfulness throughout the conversation and I, and I hope you all enjoyed it as well as Jim mentioned in the middle of the podcast he was part of the Veterans Legacy Project and more specifically the Florida France Soldier Stories Project which I teased him saying that he was spoiling it, but it was just teasing. But in reality, though, yes, that will be the next uh, episode of Night's History Cast. And now that I'm thinking about it, he will be the first uh, ever reoccurring guest for me on Night's History Cast. So that's pretty cool. So congratulations, Jim. Um, I, I know you're listening. So congrats. If you enjoyed topics that we talked about throughout this podcast, please be sure to check in next week because they will be more expanded and more explored um, with the Florida France Soldiers Stories pod. Um, it's it's, it's going to be one of the most ambitious podcasts I've ever done so far because it's a whole research team with different uh, roles from students to faculty to librarians to so on and so forth. So it's going to be a very interesting pod with a, with a multitude of people and a multitude of perspectives on this important and imperative um, research study. So stay tuned for that. For Night's History Cast, I'm Sebastian Garcia. Please subscribe to this podcast to listen to future conversations about history 
Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you on the next one. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.